Take your Bible and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Wendy and I rarely ever look at the weather. It's a character flaw. We've had to endure bad decisions a number of times. And to add to that, we are really bad about making plans on the spur of the moment without a lot of planning. Back when we first started playing disc golf, one afternoon we just decided to go play. We were out on hole 12 at Bowers Park in the middle of the woods as far as you could possibly be from the car and a thunderstorm of epic proportion hit and we just got absolutely drenched. Poor planning. When we were going through our primitive camping phase, I assume everybody goes through that phase, we headed out to camp one night with our tent. Again, per our normal routine, we did not look at the weather. I guess you figured out a thunderstorm came in the middle of the night, and that just about broke us from camping. You know, tent camping is when you leave a a nice modern house with all the stuff that you have worked for, with all of the money that you labored for, all the things you need and a bunch of stuff you don't need, and you go out into the woods and you leave all the modern conveniences that you have worked hard to pay for behind, and you live for a few days like they lived a few hundred years ago. It's supposed to be glorious, but it loses its luster during a storm at 2 a.m. At least it did for us. And it probably didn't help that we can be a little cheap, especially when we're starting something out. And so I'm guessing there probably are better made tents than the one that we were sleeping in in the middle of a a storm. Needless to say, in the early morning hours, I was longing for my own bed under my own 
roof, vowing that I would never, ever do this again. Well, the text before us this morning, here, Paul compares tent life to a permanent building, something I think that we can, we can understand. I know me and Wendy can certainly understand it. Now, before we get started, though, talking about that, let me remind you just exactly how Paul got to this point, that he's talking about tents. This text is not on an island. There's a logical progression, you know, that got us here. Paul is defending his apostolic ministry in this book. He's trying to respond to accusations leveled against him by the false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Corinth, a church, by the way, full of people saved through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, a church he founded, a church that he spent 18 months essentially pastoring. And these false teachers were convincing these people don't follow Paul. And apparently they had made some inroads. And it seems, just from what we've studied thus far in 2 Corinthians, that Paul's opponents had essentially said, look at him. Look at him. Why would you follow this guy? He ain't much to look at. He has no public speaking ability. There's no way God is working through him. Look at all the trouble he has in his life. Well, Paul essentially answered that charge by saying, guilty. Guilty. I'm guilty of of all of that and more. And that's all the reason you should believe that God is working through me. Because I am a broken vessel, and yet all of these things are being done by the power of God. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Paul then went on to stress his confidence in the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ over the old covenant Law. That was some rich stuff that we spent weeks looking at. Then he took their charge of being a weak vessel and he turned it on them. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, Paul says to their charge, You're right. I am a piece of cracked pottery at best. And that just shows that all the results of the ministry that God has given me, all of the results are due to God's power and not mine as a piece of cracked pottery. I seriously doubt they expected Paul to take their argument and turn it on them. But that's what he did. And he continues with that picture down in verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, So... We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, yes, my body is battered. Yes, we are... We are enduring much persecution, but I am focused on the future, not the present, and that drives me. That's what Paul says. There's coming something so much better, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Paul says. 
And Paul says, my eyes are fastened on that, not on this. Well, that leads right into this passage then we just read here in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. And the title of the sermon this morning is A Temporary Home. And in this text, Paul shares the reason he had such courage in the face of such opposition. Because this life is not the end. The life to come is far, far better. And so he begins by saying, Four. I told you last week the chapter break between chapters 4 and 5 is is somewhat unfortunate. Obviously, this text we are looking at this morning is directly linked to the passage we just studied last week. I hope you, you see that. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Well, Paul has said back in chapter 4 that that he focused on the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. And look, everything we see with our physical eyes, those things are just temporary. That's hard to to fathom. I mean, you know, those couple of national championships Auburn's got, they're just temporary. (laughs) But so are... The 18 that Alabama has. Paul Paul says here, for we know. We know. This, This implies at least that Paul had taught them about this truth. Of course, he he wrote it length about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. We studied that just a few months back. But undoubtedly, Paul had given them instruction on this subject while he was with them. We know this. By the way, what Paul is going to teach in this section flies in the face of Greek culture. (laughs) Absolutely in the face. To the Greek, the future, after death, when they live apart from their body, that was their desire. They wanted to be separated. In their minds, the physical body held them back. That's what caused this entire life to be so unfulfilled. And so what Paul is teaching here is that we will have an an eternal resurrection body. This is very countercultural in in his area, in, in Corinth at this time. And so he writes here, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is is simple enough. This is not hard to understand. The tent here refers to our physical body here and now. That's so obvious not only from the previous chapter, but from what we will read here in the text before us this morning. The building from God refers to our resurrection body, which we will live in forever. It's eternal. This, is, this would really be a very natural illustration for, for Paul because Paul was actually a tent maker by trade. So it's not surprising that you know, he would use this as an illustration. Think back to my illustration of, of tent camping. That tragedy that occurred when Wendy and I went. Right? A, a tent is a, is a temporary home. It, it often 
suffers damage from wind and, and rain, and nobody, I'm assuming, even the most devoted camper is using a 60-year-old tent. By that point, even if you bought the Cadillac of tents, you'd have to have patches all over it. You know. A house, though, a house is intended to last far longer than a, a tent. A building is intended to last far longer than a now, obviously, the illustration falls apart if you push it too far because even the most well-built home by human beings is not going to last forever. But Paul is simply using the picture for comparison purposes. One is meant to be a temporary dwelling, a tent, and one is meant to be a permanent dwelling, a, a, a site-built home. Simple enough. Well, as believers... We will receive a resurrected body when Jesus returns. If we've died prior or we are alive when He returns, it doesn't matter. We're going to receive a renewed, better, resurrected, changed body. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, We shall not all sleep, speaking of death, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. So whether... We are alive when Jesus returns or whether we have died, we're going to receive a new body, a building made from God, he calls it here. He says in verse 2 then, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. It's so hard as an Alabama guy to say that word because you know it's going to come out so redneck, naked. But it's, you know, I'm trying to be... Very proper. Naked. In the here and now, while we have this body, Paul says we groan. We groan. He has a lot to say about this, by the way, in Romans chapter 8. I, I would love to go do a complete exposition of Romans chapter 8 and work through it, but we, we can't. But let me share a couple of verses with you. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Paul says... For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So it's not just we who groan. Paul says it is the whole creation that groans. He goes on in Romans and says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, obviously speaking of saved people, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. And here's this definition, the redemption of our bodies. So we don't have to wonder what it is he's groaning for. He says we are groaning for the redemption of our bodies. I don't guess that I have to explain what this means to you, though in the West we do often struggle with you know, life being greatly difficult here. But we all have lost loved ones. We've gone through sickness. We have pains. We get tired. There are anxieties. There are stressful times. There are troubles in relationships. And it goes on and on and on. Life does have its downward spirals. But I, I dare say that because we are so used to living in a fallen world in a in a sinful body, we cannot really grasp what it would be like not to deal with the normal problems of life. Like that, That's beyond our thinking capacity. But even the unbelieving world endures all of those things, though. Lost people get sick, tired, 
stressed, and the like. But for them, there's no hope. That's the difference. Stephen Hawking, one of the more famous evolutionary scientists of our day, he was actually a theoretical physicist. Anyway, he he once famously said this, quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark, end quote. That's Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest minds of our day, at least intellectually. He was smart. He was genius level. But he had a very bleak outlook. What makes it even more bleak is the fact that this is a man who suffered from ALS for some 55 years. That is the expectation, though, of the atheist. I mean, to Stephen Hawking and all atheists, life has no meaning. There is nothing. But that is not the case with Paul. Paul had hope, and he knew there was meaning in life because of what Jesus has done for us. Paul longed for the next life. He groaned for it because it will be incomparably better. He says he was longing to put on his heavenly dwelling, the the resurrected body. Notice, he did not want to be found naked, it says here. In other words, Paul's hope was that he would survive until Jesus returned. That's what he means. So that he would receive his resurrected body at that moment. He would not have to live in the intermediate state between death and the return of Jesus, the state in which all those who have died in Christ are now living. Those who have died in Christ do not currently have their resurrected body. That will come when Jesus returns. Paul says, I don't want that. But he knew it was a real possibility if he passed away before Jesus returned. He knew that would happen. Maybe his experience in Asia, the one he mentioned back in chapter 1, showed him just how quickly death could come. Anyway, he says in verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And Paul goes back to what he said in verse 2. In this tent, we groan. And we groan, Paul says, because we are burdened. In Paul's case, and sometimes in ours, we we are burdened far beyond what the natural person is burdened because there's persecution towards human I mean, toward Christians, but all human beings are burdened to some degree with sickness and and sin and the like. And for what it's worth, Paul knew what he was talking about. I'm not in any way discounting any of our suffering. Suffering is is suffering. We, We suffer. If you are suffering, it hurts. You don't enjoy it. But Paul is speaking as an authority on suffering here. Now let me be clear. He says back in chapter 4, verse 8, that he was perplexed, but he was not driven to despair. So when he says here that he's, he's groaning, don't think that Paul is living in constant agony. That's not, that's not what he, 
He means. David Garland refers to it as a hopeful longing. Kent Hughes calls it a groan of anticipation. Those are, those are good. They both make sense. And, and as I said before, Paul hoped to escape the intermediate state. He did not want to be found naked. He did not want to be unclothed. He makes that very clear here. What drove Paul was the understanding, though, that one day when Jesus returns, all of the saints are going to be resurrected and we will all be further clothed. That's Paul's great hope. That means your current body that you are in is not going to be annihilated forever. It's going to be resurrected. And it's going to be made better. Job, Job 19 says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job expected that his body, the very body that he was living in right then, the one that was suffering from all of that sickness that Satan had inflicted on him, he expected that very body to be resurrected in the future but it would be made new. It would be made better. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica saying that the dead in Christ will rise. And he means the bodies that have been put into the grave will rise. These very bodies. And notice the resurrection body will be immortal. It it, it will never die. Paul says here, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In the, his, his first canonical letter to the church at Corinth, he said this mortal will put on immortality. But it's this mortal, it's this body that will be made right. It's this body that will be made eternal. That was Paul's hope. He knew it was coming. And so Paul pressed on. He wasn't looking at all the things going on around him all the time because he was looking far into the future. He says in verse 5 then, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is God's work. This This is why we're saved. It's God's work. And there's this guarantee. If I guarantee you something there's a pretty good possibility I'll follow through. But there's not 100%. Even if I want to, I might not be able to. But that's not a possibility with God. There's this guarantee. and The Holy Spirit has been given to us, much like we put a down payment on a, on a house. You know, we call that earnest money today. There's this guarantee What is the work of the Holy Spirit then? I think sometimes we don't hit this exactly right. I think sometimes we've been so influenced by those around us that are way overly wrapped up in spiritual things that we've missed clear Scripture. I actually read a wonderful book this past week entitled God Doesn't Whisper. You ought to read it. It's really good. It's written by a man named Jim Osmond. Anyway, I I thought he summed up the work of the Holy Spirit really well. Here's what he says, quote, The Spirit regenerates, fills, seals, sanctifies, convicts, 
comforts, gifts, encourages, enables, and strengthens us. He guides our prayers, gives us holy desires, testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, and leads us into holy living. He illumines the Word of God, empowers believers for service, and produces fruit in our life. End quote. All of those things are said in Scripture to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And by this work, we are guaranteed by God that one day all will be made right, that we will be given a far better body and live in a much greater reality than we actually live in right now. This is not nearly as real as what's going on in the unseen world. It just feels more real to us. And so Paul says in verse 6, So we are always of good courage. This is Paul's answer to the charge of the false teachers. Why do you keep on, Paul, when all this affliction keeps coming your way? This is why, Paul says, we are always of good courage because there's a better day coming and I believe it. Despite what Joel Osteen says, you are not living your best life now. At least Paul didn't think so. And so he says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And this is, this is simple enough. This is, not, this is not difficult. In Acts 2, you know, we studied Acts 2 a while back. In Acts 2, Jesus, or excuse me, in Acts 1, uh, Jesus ascended into heaven and today is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and He is now currently seated at the Father's right hand. We can't see Him with our physical eyes. The apostles, others in the early church, they were eyewitnesses. We aren't eyewitnesses. We weren't alive. We are away from the Lord, Paul puts it here, physically at least. That's Paul's point. We see Jesus, yes, but we see Him by faith, not by sight. You've probably heard that old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Usually that's talking about your significant other when you're apart. But in this case, the Lord Jesus has gone into a far country to receive a kingdom for Himself and to return. That's what Luke 19 says. And while we, along with Paul, we long for the time, we groan for the time that Jesus returns and we will see Him as He is. Then Paul shares what here in the south we call His druthers. His druthers. I looked it up. That's a real word. I thought we made it up down here, but we didn't. It just means this is his preference. This is what he hopes happens. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, I told you earlier, Paul desired to live until the time that Jesus returned so he would not be found naked, so he would not be unclothed. That was his hope. That, that's our hope. It's not uncommon. I think most of us want to live until Jesus returns. But Paul knew that may not happen. If Jesus did not return somewhat soon, Paul was going to go the way of all humans. 
you know, the mortality rate still is set right at 100%. Paul was going to die. Taking all of that in perspective then, I I I would rather survive until Jesus returns so that my body will then just be changed and I won't live in this intermediate state. I won't be found naked. I won't be unclothed. But taking all of that into perspective, it was still far better to die and be at home with the Lord. That's what Paul says. By the way, back in verse 6, Paul said, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Here, in verse 8, he says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. You see the the contrast there. He, He sort of takes that phrase and turns it on its head. You know, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi saying, my desire is to depart. He means, he means death. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now he goes on to explain in Philippians that he knew that if he remained, his ministry was good for other people. But as far as his own desires, it would be better to die and be with Jesus. The intermediate state then, if you die before Jesus returns, there's this intermediate state. That's not our eternal design. Our eternal design is this eternal building from God that he's been talking about, the resurrection body. But the intermediate state is still to be at home with the Lord. To be out of this human body is to be at home with the Lord. And Paul says that is far Better than this life. There's two reasonably significant truths taught here. First, it's only the body that sleeps. The body dies, we put it in a casket, and we pay $10,000 for somebody to put it in the ground. Isn't that crazy? But that's what you have to do. The soul, though isn't in that body once the body dies. In fact, the soul is very much alive. In fact, for the believer at least, the soul is far more alive than it's ever been. Believers who have passed away by the authority of this text are at home with the Lord right now. As we sit here, This morning, they are in heavenly bliss. So point number one is that the body sleeps, but the soul does not. Second point, they are presently unclothed. This obviously comes out of our first point. But they are presently unclothed. That's the way that Paul puts it. They are disembodied. They aren't in their body. The the soul has left the body. I understand that a doctor does the best that he can do and pronounces death when the heart stops beating, but biblically, that's not when death comes. Death comes biblically when the soul leaves the body. We can keep the heart beating for a long time with, with all kind of mechanisms that we hook up to things. But the body, or, or the, the person dies when the soul leaves. Saints today that have died before the coming of Christ are disembodied. Their body is is in the grave, but their soul is with the Lord. 
But this is not the end. We're not in, we're not in the eternal state just yet. We're still waiting on that. And so Paul says here, verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Look, Paul is living for the future. We talked about that last week. Paul's eschatology, his, his study of future things, his understanding of future things, changed his present way of living. Guys, look, doctrine is not just something to argue with people about. It's not. If that's what we think doctrine is, we are at best immature. At best. But our understanding of any doctrine, in this case, prophecy, eschatology, our understanding of any doctrine should change the way we live our lives. To put it this way, if you believe in grace, but you don't have much grace, something's wrong. Right? If you believe in grace, but you don't have a lot of grace, something's disconnected here. Anyway, Paul knew there was coming a day when he would either die and be at home with the Lord, or Jesus would return, he would receive his resurrected body, and be at home with the Lord. But one way or another, Paul is going to be at home with the Lord in the future. And so he lives in light of that knowledge. For Paul then, he says, we make it our aim to please Him. Because I know that's coming. But Paul, Paul wasn't in ministry for Paul. He wasn't building his own kingdom, right? No, he's out preaching the gospel. Verse 5 of chapter 4, again, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Paul's not preaching Paul. Paul's not preaching his tribe. He's not preaching about men. He's preaching about the man, Jesus Christ. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But Paul lived for the Lord in hopes that his life would be recognized by Christ as faithful. That leads us then into this final verse. Verse 10. Four. You see, this is all connected. Paul is a very logical thinker and a very logical writer. He continues to connect things. Four. 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 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that... That's a connecting term too. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So at, at some point in the future, and people have argued about exactly when this all happens. It, that's not important to Paul here. But at some point in the future, every saint will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a fact. By the way, the Greek word here rendered judgment seat is bema. We, if using English letters, B-E-M-A. You may have even heard it referred to that way if you've been in church for some time. This is the same word used to describe the place Jesus was brought when He stood before Pilate. It's the same word used to describe the, the place that Paul was tried before Gallio and, and in Festus in Acts 18 and 25. 
These Greek speakers knew what this word was. Except this is not the Bema of Pilate or the Bema of Gallio or Festus. No, this is the Bema of Christ. Now, interestingly, A.W. Pink says that it sometimes referred to the throne from which the judge distributed prizes to the victors in the games. John MacArthur also said something very similarly. Quote, in Greek culture, Bema referred to the elevated platform on which victorious athletes received their crowns, much like the medal stand in the modern Olympic Games. End quote. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because this is not a judgment to see if we make it into heaven or not. That's not what's, that's not what's going on at all. Our, our salvation was taken care of at Calvary. Our sins have been paid for. That's not what this is about. This is a judgment for our service to the Lord, whether good or evil, whether helpful to the cause of Christ or worthless. That's the point. Remember the words of Jesus in Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. To render to every man according to his work. That's the point. That's what the Bema is all about. Rewarding the saints for faithful service. Look, Paul had his eyes focused on eternity. He had his eyes focused on receiving his eternal, permanent, fixed, resurrection body. But he never lost sight of the fact that he was going to be judged by the Lord for his service and ministry. He never did. And so he reminds them of that Here, yes, there is eternal bliss coming, but there's a judgment coming too. Don't forget that. I would hate for me and Wendy to be judged on our ability to primitive camp. We're not good at it. Our kids can tell you we're not good at it. But we all are going to be judged for our tent life our life in these bodies that we're currently living in. We're all going to be judged for that. We must learn to make the best use of our time. Now, let me offer some clarification here. Paul was not living in some hypnotic, dreamy state just meditating on heaven all the time. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Paul actually did, in fact, find joy here in this life, in this tent, serving the Lord in the here and now. He's not saying he didn't enjoy life. He's simply saying there is coming something far better. So don't don't think that Paul just hated life itself. That's not what he means. And look, there's nothing at all wrong with recreation in the right place. God actually has blessed us with health and freedom and ability to have recreational time, hobbies and and such. But we always must acknowledge that God is the blesser at those times. And those activities can never, ever take the place of God. Obviously, when that happens, we've gone awry. Look, we need to learn, like Paul, to groan then, rightly, 
for Jesus' return when everything's going to be made right. That's why Jesus told us to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to the future and we live in light of the future. And it helps us to really comprehend what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is victory then for the child of God. It's not loss. Now I think part of our problem in America is that we have not had to struggle much in life. So it's, it's hard for us to picture tent life in a permanent way here in, on planet Earth. Far more difficult for us to relate to what Paul is saying here than someone, for instance, in a, in a third world countries. Americans do tend to live by sight more than people who don't have tomorrow's food available to them. We, because of our freedoms to, to work and play and shop, we often live like we're the ones in charge when we, we aren't. I am greatly thankful to live in America. I'm greatly thankful for the freedoms that we have. I'm thankful that if God gives me breath and physical ability, I'm going to eat lunch here in just a few moments. Praise the Lord for that. I am thankful. But don't let those things lull you to sleep. I pray this text at least wakes us up. If it doesn't, I hope the current state of our society wakes us up. Our society is in a mess. It's in a shambles. We may have better technology than we've ever had, but we are not better than we've ever been. Now before I've closed, I want to make sure that I'm clear about something. I mentioned it earlier, but I want to be a little bit more clear. We've talked some about judgment this morning because it's, it's here in the text. But I want to make dead level certain that you didn't miss this point. This is very, very important. The Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, is not about justification. It is not determining salvation. It is not deciding whether you are going to live in heaven or hell. Don't think that. This is judging your works, whether your works are good or evil. And if that's for salvation, you won't make it. I won't either. Paul says in Romans 3, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Your works, when measured against the perfect righteousness and holiness of God, always fall. Wonderfully though, Paul goes on in Romans 3 and says, But now, and this is as good as the but God of Ephesians 2, by the way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The judgment seat of Christ then is for believers to determine rewards for times of faithful service. But forgiveness of sins is not found in your works. It is only found in the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The lost will be judged, will be found lacking, will be condemned for all eternity to pay their own debt. And it will never be paid. But for us, 
our sins were judged once and for all time in Jesus at Calvary. All I know to tell you is flee to Christ. Change your mind about yourself. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about Jesus and trust in Him alone for salvation because He is truly your only hope. Stand with me if you will. Blake, will you close us out?